What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode three of Blazing the Trail. On this episode, we'll be spotlighting the legacy of the No Stats All-Star himself, Shane Battier. Please remember that the article I wrote on Battier is also live as we speak, and you can find the link to that and parts one and two of this series in the description below or just by visiting basketballnews.com. This episode is a little bit different from our first two chapters because we actually had the chance to sit down with Shane himself. And let me tell you, our conversation was phenomenal. We talked about his background, the Mori Ball revolution in Houston, his tricks for slowing down the likes of Kobe Bryant, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, and Dwayne Wade, and so, so much more. Also joining us is 18-year NBA assistant head coach, David Fisdale to talk about what it's like going against and in a battle with Shane Battier. While listening to this, you might notice that Fizdale is incredibly giddy all throughout the episode. That's because the day after we recorded this, he was actually hired to be an associate general manager for the Utah Jazz. I'm so excited for him. He's truly one of the brightest, most open-minded thinkers in the sport, and he's so deserving of this opportunity. Speaking of excitement, I'm super excited for you guys to hear this episode and to read our article. Anyways, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for podcast consumption. We have so many more great interviews with players and coaches coming up, and I just really don't want you guys to miss out. For instance, next time, we spotlight the career of one of the greatest shooters that ever lived in Reggie Miller. With the help of former teammates and coaches, and soon-to-be best-selling author, my friend Mike Prado. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, and stay tuned. Without further ado, I give you Blazing the Trip. This is um, just to give you some background. We're doing a 10-part series about 10 revolutionary figures from the 90s, 2000s. And your portion of the series, I've titled it Shane Battier, the Data Ball Defender. Can you, can you explain to someone who's not like familiar with your work why someone like me would call you that? Could you like tell me what was going on during the 2000s with that Maury Ball revolution in Houston? Yeah, so you know, I had the great pleasure of and traded to the Rockets in 2006. And the Rockets uh, were the first team in pro basketball, at least, to adopt a, a, a data-centric philosophy. Now, this had been going on in baseball for many years. And if you have seen the movie Moneyball, you'd understand Billy Bean. And in 2006, I, I would say most teams didn't have a mature uh, analytics uh, department, but they had some semblance. No one had that basketball. And because of uh, uh, Daryl Morey, who you know grew up in the, in the Boston Celtics uh, uh, system, 
they started using data analytics, but they didn't adopt it fully. And uh, Daryl had a thesis of, hey, I want to I want to run my entire organization based on what the data says. And so Leslie Alexander, you know, bond trader from New York, owner of the Rockets, said, yep, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, Daryl Morey, along with Sam Hinkey, uh, you know, basically rebuilt the front office, the, the Rockets using data and analytics uh, to shape their decisions. And I was their first major acquisition when Daryl became the GM um, uh, because the algorithm, algorithms they use identified me as a player who provided outsourced value at a very reasonable price. <laughs> so I was like the discount, the discount guy uh, in, in their models. So they made a trade for me in uh, 06 for uh, the rights to Rudy Gay, which time was panned by everybody in Houston because here's Rudy Gay, who's this like, you know, athletic stud and just looks like a basketball player. And here I was, who averaged 10 points a game and six rebounds and no one understood. Uh, but but Daryl and Sam underst- understood the value that I brought to the team. And when I got there, um, you know, I was very curious about how they thought about data. And um, I really, really just became enamored with like, okay, this is like having the answers to the test before taking the test. Why, why, why wouldn't I want to learn more about this? And, and so uh, working with Sam and Daryl, I understood what the, the value of analytics were. And I was able to, to, to utilize that in, in in-game situations. And as a result, um, you know, I have my best defensive years in, in Houston. And it changed the entire way I thought about uh, the game of basketball. Yeah, you mentioned in past interviews quantitative and qualitative scouting reports. Can you briefly explain what the difference is between those two and why, why it's meaningful? Yeah. You know, so traditionally uh, the NBA scout would produce a scouting report. It's called advanced scouting uh, on a team. And if I was playing the Lakers and I'm guarding Kobe, you know, the report would read just before analytics, you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, great first step, you know, capable three point shooter, uh, will attack the rim, uh, so fade away shot in the post, uh, you know, great competitor. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, thanks. I, I know Kobe's a great competitor. I, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need a scouting report to tell me what Kobe Bryant was. So, you know, it was completely qualitative of, of like what the eyeball says, what a guy is about. Now, this is like, you know, important back in the 70s and the 80s because, you know, you didn't always see – every player in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no, there's no league pass. Uh, and so if you never played a guy, you know, you want to know what he was about, you know, in today's game, um, like you, you know, every player and, you know, especially once you've been through the league once, you know what a guy is, what he's not. So um, the quantitative report that, that the Rockets produced for me, I knew exactly who a player was, um, down to the percentile. And so instead of saying Kobe Bryant is, you know, has a great right hand, I knew, I knew that Kobe Bryant drives right, right 65% of the time. And when he does, it's basically a 62% shot. You know, when he goes left, uh, he only goes with 35%. And when he does, it's uh, a 42% shot, right? So I knew like exactly what, Kobe's, you know, relative weakness was uh, compared to his strengths, and and so for me, again, it was like having the answers to the test for the for the 
uh, for the test. I said, well, why wouldn't I push all these guys to their weakness um, if I knew what their weakness really, really was? And and so it really just changed the way I, I approach defense and, and, really, and, and basketball in general. Mm-hmm. Now, out of all the players we're covering in this series, I would argue that your your revolutionary effect is the most widespread. You know, just for example, in today's in today's NBA landscape, the finals was partially decided by this kind of decision making you're talking about. You know, the the Warriors decided that they were going to force Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum to their left hand, make them drive to their left hand, which was for them like a suboptimal pathway to the rim. How widespread in today's game is that quantitative scouting report you're talking about? Well, I would argue that even if players don't know how the sausage is made, mm-hmm. um, they sort of understand, like, generally, you know, this is good and this is kind of this is bad. You know, it's, it's no different than if you're on a diet, you're trying to lose weight. You know, if you eat three donuts a, a week, it's probably not going to help you lose weight, Right. So maybe, you know, cut it down to one donut. <laughs> okay. So that's sort of like how players think about basketball now. It's like, well, you know, we're not going to eliminate the mid-range shot, but instead of taking five a game, maybe I take three. And with those other two shots that I get normally, I'm going to tra- either tra- attack the rim or I'm going to ta- take a three-pointer, you know, which are statistically much better shots. And, and so they understand trade-offs much better than when I played. Um, and so even though they don't understand the math, they understand that like, I, I got to stay away from the bad things and do the good things more. <laughs> it sounds really, really basic, but that's all the analytics is. And, and so I think there's a better appreciation for, you know, what statisticians would call, you know, living in on, on the fat tails. And so I think coaches and GMs know this at a much higher level and game plans kind of reflect that. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing with that mid-range stuff you were mentioning, I think it's just eliminating the the catch and shoot mid-range shot, you know, not so much the pull-up one because the pull-up one is very important, especially like late clock. You could really use a nice little midi pull-up when, when everything else is kind of gone to shit, you know, basketball in it's, at its core, it's supposed to be like fun. You know, it's like a hedonistic endeavor. You do it for enjoyment Right. And so like that academic part, you know, it's something that like writers like myself use because, well, in part because we couldn't we couldn't play in the NBA, you know, so we have to find a way to stay around the game. And it's by, you know, learning these advanced features of it and how to talk about it in a more nuanced way. You were, you know, an incredible athlete. You were a blue chip prospect. Um, like I think you were like top five ranked in the country when you were a senior in high school, something like that. Why, why would you do this to yourself? Why would you get into this nerdy side if you didn't have to? Because I definitely wouldn't have if I was you. I play basketball for one reason. One reason only, to win. Mm. That's it. That's it. You know, I realized at a very young age, I'm not cool. I got, I, you know, they didn't call it swag back then. I had no mm. swag. Yeah. All right. I tried that. It didn't work for me. All right. I love to compete. I love to win. And if someone said, look, you got to wear this polka dot jersey, these polka dot shoes that make you look like a clown. But you know what? You got a better chance to win. Guess what I'm putting on? Those polka dot shoes. And so for me, like, I didn't, I could care less about style points. I mean, literally, all I want to do is win. 
And for me, understanding like what actually wins basketball games, um, that was in, that's interesting. That's cool. Um, and so um, I, I never, ever, ever worried about what I looked like because uh, I gave it up a long time ago. All I cared about is do we win and do I help my team win? And am I, am I on the floor to help my team win when it counts the most? And, and so that's, that's the fun for me. And so that's, that's the way I've always looked at it ever since I was in kindergarten. That's the only thing that mattered. Tell me if this has ever happened to you, Shane, just really quick aside. Cause I just, it's just tame to me. You're like your, your friend, family member, they ask you a question about basketball and then it's like, a, they think a simple question, maybe just turn some conversation and you go into like a tangent about like, you know, all this like philosophy data about why this is happening, why this is happening, why this isn't true, why that isn't true. And then they just look at you like, you know, you don't make sports fun anymore. Like, I don't, I don't have fun when you talk about sports. I don't want to talk about them with you because that happens to me a lot. <laughs> I, you know, look, I'm a fan too. And I love watching Steph Curry and I love watching athletic plays. I mean, sports, sports are, are awesome because you want to see how people react under stress. Right. And that's why, you know, that, that, that's what NBA finals were great. That's why NCAA tournaments great because we want to see how people react under stressful situations and in sports, you win or you lose. All right. It's a clear cut, uh, you know, outcome to every game. Right. So how you get there, uh, how you get to that point, you know, that's a matter of, matter of style points. And that's, you know, that, that's up for debate and, and philosophy. But again, it goes back to winning. And it, the second you get bored of winning, you got to find a new hobby. And any great champion in this league will tell you the same exact thing. They could care less how it looks. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, the, I mean, they look, make it look so easy. But all they care about is raising that trophy. And so that's, that's why sports are great. That's why it's compelling. That's why we wanted to understand, like, what makes a champion? What makes a person who can, who can perform when the, when the intensity and the pressure is, is the highest? And that will, that will never change. That will never, ever, ever change. That's a good point. Um, you know, I talked to Coach, coach Keener, your old high school coach at Country Day a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me, he gave me uh, some insight on this. But I'm always curious – on how revolutionary players were inspired, right? What inspired you? What players did you watch growing up that kind of inspired your game? He said that he thought you might've been inspired by Magic Johnson a little bit, you know, being around the East Lansing area kind of growing up and seeing that egalitarian, selfless style Magic played with on the Showtime Lakers that might've inspired your selfless style in a different way. Obviously, you know, I'm not gonna lie, you weren't the passer that Magic Johnson was. I'm sorry to tell you. What what player what players from the you know when you were growing up you were watching did you you think had the biggest impact on how your game turned out? Uh, that's a great, quite great question. You know, look, mm-hmm. being, from, being from Detroit, I love the Pistons, and mm-hmm. for me, the Pistons were the ultimate team. And you know, maybe it's because I'm from Michigan. You know, my dad grew up you know in a kind of a blue collar job and. And if you live in Michigan, you understand the importance of the assembly line and, and, and teamwork. And it's all about team, right? And, and, you know, Detroit, if you're a Detroit sports fan, you love the teams. You know, some of the greatest athletes come through here, Barry Sanders, you know, Grant Hill, they were never fully appreciated because they were transcendent talents, you know, but their teams didn't, didn't win. And so being from Detroit, it was always about team. 
and winning and championships. And so, you know, I was no different. And um, growing up watching Michael Jordan, like, you know, young Jordan, he was an unbelievable talent, but his teams weren't great. You know, and it wasn't until they became a true team was when he became a champion itself. So, like, uh, you know, for me, again, it was not about what I did. It was not about what my stats were. I could care less. It was about, you know, what do we do? And did we win? Did we compete? You know, did we did we play together? And so that, like, being from Detroit, you know, really, really impacted how I, I thought about sports and basketball and really was the hallmark of my entire career. Mm. I, I appreciate you saying that because whenever I find out, like, you know, when I'm talking about these players, when I'm talking about you and the other players I'm studying, whenever I find out who inspired them, I go back and watch some of that player or team. So I'm, I'm really glad you just gave me an excuse to, to get back into the bad boys. So I sent you uh, a chart last week and, you know, we talked about the Kobe Bryant thing and how, how you were, you know, you, had, you knew, you knew where, to, where to take him, where to guide him where, where his anti-sweet spots were. And I discovered pretty early from watching you that you were basically the Darrell Revis of the NBA during your time, especially from 2006 to 2009, you had the number of pretty much every ball, ball centric guard slash forward, all-star guard slash forward you were matched up against, you know, the likes of Kobe Bryant, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Paul Pierce, Vince Carter, Brandon Roy, Joe Johnson, all these guys, when they played you, their efficiency decreased. And other than Kobe, all of them, your their volume decreased. Can you give me some more of those like Kobe-esque tidbits on how, how you went about guarding some of these guys? <laughs> uh, well, I, I appreciate that chart. I, I, I mm-hmm. saw that chart. and uh, It's a cool graphic, uh, isn't it? My buddy made it. I I was was super, super proud of that. Mm -hmm. And like, look, you know, the the secret for all these volume scores, and it really wasn't a secret. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like rocket science. The places those guys just absolutely crushed you, right, were um, at the rim and at the free throw line. Okay, so you're talking about all the high volume guys, Carmelo, Kobe, uh, Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, LeBron, D-Wade, those guys, when they shot, you know, 10 to 23 throws a game, they were, they were scoring 40 points. All right, they were scoring 50 points. All right, so you just could not give them free points at the three throw line. Just couldn't do it, right? And then they're also legendary finishers. You know, when players go to the rim, they get fouled more. Then it's easier for them to make shots. So, like, as long as I did those two things, I try to keep them on transition. I didn't foul them. I could live with any other shot those guys would take. And where a lot of people go wrong is they get so caught up in the result. I didn't care about the result. All I cared about was like what the process was. If they took, you know, if they took a ton of mid-range jumpers and they, or threes, you know, off the dribble and they made them, I was okay with that. Because I knew over the long run, those numbers were not sustainable. And they weren't. Um, the, you know, the mid-range jump shot is actually a really hard shot to hit. It's a hard shot. Well, most people are like, no, it's, it's a, you know, 15-footer. Like, everyone should make it. Like, it's like a sub-50% shot. You know, a good mid-range jump shooter, like 45%. And that's not great. You're not going to win a ball game by making that shot a ton. And so, you know, for the high-volume guys, I had – I was lucky. I had a lot of freedom to sort of do what I want that may have gone against the game plan um, because I knew these guys. But 
keep them off the foul line, keep them away from the basket, and then be okay with any other shot they take. You know, Carmelo Anthony scored 50 points on me um, when I was with the Heat, and he had zero paint points. You know, like how difficult that is to do. That's like a, it's like an all time like outlier game. Um, but after the game, people were like ripping on me. I'm like, dude, like I would defend him the same exact way. Like the process was right, the result was not. But I, I don't judge myself on result. And and so we play him a couple weeks later, and I do the same thing. And he shoots four for seventeen, and we win the game by thirty. And and everyone's like, oh, Carmelo had an off night. I'm like, no, it's like, like. That's just the process. The process is right. And, and so that's where I was, I was very different from other defenders where I did, I didn't really care if the guy made or missed a shot. I cared about where he took the shot. Mm. And interestingly enough, I was looking at this before we, we started our conversation, but I think your first year in Houston, you guys allowed the most mid range shots in the league. Same thing with the second year. And then the third year, I think it was like the third most. So you guys were allowing, and that's about half of, the other team's shot diet, which is just like if half the other team's shot diet is mid-range shots, you have a really good chance of having an elite defense. You want to hear something funny? You know who the one um, ball-dominant all-star forward that kind of had your number during that 06 to 09 period was? Steven Jackson. No, it was Josh Howard, actually. Because <laughs> I don't think Steven Jackson had an all-star uh, award from 06 to 09. That's why he didn't fit the, the criteria. Yeah. But it was yeah, Josh I- Howard. Yeah, Josh, he was good. He was, he was mm-hmm. tough. Um, he didn't settle for a lot of mid-range jumpers. Yeah, he was a guy who got to the basket. Yeah, he was good. He was, he was tough cover. Tough cover. Underrated defender, too. Yeah, he was good. He was good. As you could probably tell by now, I'm, I'm a pretty huge advocate for the use of data. I think it has an important place in sports. But even I sometimes worry you know, that we're going to reach a point where basketball loses its subjectivity we have like too much data maybe too much objectivity and subjectivity is what makes the game beautiful as you're aware what would you tell somebody to kind of quell their fears about that and then also where do you think that balance lies in terms of data and then just like subjectivity well we're, we're talking about two different things we're talking about the marketability of the game and then the competitive spirit of the game as long as we have incentive to win that's about incentive structures. So as long as we have incentives to win as a, as a general manager, or as a, pl- a coach, as a player, guess what? When we win more, we have our job longer and we'll pay us more money. So <laughs> people are going to maximize who play the game the way they can play the game to maximize their their financial windfall in their career. All right. That, that's, 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 the, that's the economist in me. You know, now we're talking about the marketing of the game. We're trying to sell the game also and grow the game. And we want, again, we want athletic plays and we want plays. Uh, we want close games where people can prove how they uh, perform under pressure. And look, basketball is a game of pendulum swings, right? And it's a game of copycat league. It's a, co- it's a copycat league. And so obviously now people know that the value of the three-point shot. So they're trying to get as many shooters as they can. You know, I would argue that at some point, you're going to have, you know, so many great shooters. The course is going to be so spaced out that then there's, there's going to be a premium on guys who can utilize that space and attack the rim and, and make those athletic, you know, dunks and, and crazy finishes because the spacing is so good and the shooting is so good, right? So the game always falls. If you, just, if you wait long enough, 
there could be a, you know, this kid, Victor uh, from France is coming in mm-hmm. next year. You know, he's a super unique guy. And all of a sudden he may come in and dominate. And everyone says, man, we need, we need a seven footer that can do it all. And, and we need a big guy. And so the game always evolves. And if you just wait long enough, it, it'll evolve. But again, it's, it's about having the most athletic skill players in the world uh, create those plays uh, which will always be compelling for, for fans like us to watch in the group four and, and, and debate. Yeah. I mean, that makes me feel better. I was going to say, um, we've, we've said that your, your revolutionary skill, it's more of a, it's kind of more like permeated just in the day to day, how things operate. You know, we've talked about the, the quantitative scouting reports. It's not as like obvious as like, okay, Trey Young was definitely influenced by Steve Nash. Like you can see that connection, but still me and uh, coach Fisdale, when we spoke about you a couple of weeks ago, we were able to come up with a couple guys who kind of reminded us, reminded us of you in today's NBA. I'm curious first, before I share mine, who do you think when you watch reminds you of yourself today? Oh man. Um, I don't think there's anyone that's slow, unathletic, that can still play in today's game. So, uh, from from an athletic profile, there's not too many guys that were as unathletic as I was. Uh, you know, there's there's some really you know smart defenders out there. You know, I love watching Draymond. Draymond's great. You know, he he just he sees the defense and, and plays like two or three passes ahead, which I always thought I. I could do you know i think i think Draymond much better player than i was but you know i appreciate his his defense i think that uh you know like a young uh matisse tybal you know is is defensively his instincts are are amazing when he figures out his shots it's going to be a, a you know a handful you know if i could go back now i think i'd be much more like some of these guys where if i could play today I would try to shoot 23s a game. I wouldn't even venture into the paint. <laughs> so we talk about how the data impacted me. I, I knew it, what was good for me on defense. No, I didn't no hook that. shots? No post hook shots? No, no. I retire that. You know, I wasted too much of my life practicing those shots. I would just try to get, you know, Trey Young and Steph Curry range and shoot 23s a game. It'd be a lockdown defender and, and probably probably have a much better legacy than I do. <laughs> You have you you have a great legacy to me, man. I'm telling you, you do. I, I feel like you're. It's starting to come around how how valuable you were um, during those years for that Houston team. Just wait until the article comes out. I've got some. I've got some uh, bars. I'm gonna spit for you, man. But um, I was gonna say. So the ones that me and Coach Fisdale came up with, yeah, Draymond, um, and then we also said Mikhail Bridges, and one I just came up with. It just kind of dawned on me as you were talking about Melo raining 50 points on all mid-range shots. It reminded me of Kevin Durant raining a bunch of mid-range shots over PJ Tucker a couple of years ago. And like people were like, oh man, Kevin Durant's cooking PJ Tucker. But really, you know, the overall, the global offense was was down during that series thanks to what PJ Tucker was doing and just kind of making life difficult on Durant. So you do remind me of PJ. Well, PJ Tucker, excuse me, reminds me of you in some way. Yep. And he also donned the red and white at one point. Yep. 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 Yeah. Really smart player. So mm-hmm. there, there's some, there's some, there's some guys who, who embrace it and uh, who, who are, who are tough. Like you can't be a great defender in this league without being tough and having a short memory. 
All right, because the guys are too good. They're they're going to make buckets on you. Uh, so yeah, the best you can hope for is is, is you, they take tough shots, and you know sometimes it's good when they make tough shots because then they'll keep shooting more tough shots, which is just not sustainable. Exactly. Now speaking of Coach Fisdale, he he let me in on one of your trade secrets, and just to kind of explain it to people listening, to this it's you know whenever there's a ball screen, right? It's up to the big man who's guarding the screener to call out the coverage that the guard is supposed to execute on the play. And so you, as the screener, would call out a coverage that wasn't the coverage the defender was trying to call out. And, you know, every maybe like once a game or something like that, it would lead to a basket. Uh, are you recalling the, the little trick he's telling me about? And what, what, what makes yes. you think of something like that? Well, that was I, the greatest special a situation coach ever played for mm-hmm. was a uh, Hubie Brown. Hubie was the yeah. best. Mm-hmm. And Hubie gave us all these little tricks. And I'm, you know, I, I, again, I'm a competitor. So whatever I can do within the, within the, the realm of integrity for the game, I'm not going to cheat or, or play dirty, mm-hmm. but whatever I can do to, to gain an advantage, I'm going to do it. And so there's nothing legal about me calling out a play or a screen when I'm setting the screen. And so you just create, you, you create mass confusion and, uh, and all you're trying to do is buy yourself one second of hesitation and you're going to create an opening, which is all you need to get a shot off or, or a bucket. And so, uh, Hubie Brown used to tell us, and hey, we had this awesome play at the end of the games. He would say, you know, Hey, you know, I want you to call the switch. Starts yelling, switch, 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 switch. And even if it's not their coverage, uh, other team may hesitate to be like, wait, that's not our coverage. And by then you've already slipped the screen or, or moved to an area and it creates an unbelievable advantage. So I used to piss off our scout teams all the time. So I do it every single day in, in practice and it's impossible to not react to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're so trained yeah. to react to this out. So um, it worked a ton. So I, I love like that play. I love like, you know, I got Paul Pierce twice where I threw the ball off his back. And scored a scored a bucket when I was taking yeah. the ball underneath the underneath the basket. You know, like like plays like that. I just love just just I was the biggest the biggest jerk, but like I, I loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I love that. When he when when Coach Fizzo was telling me about that, I was just like, it took me a second to like register. Like, what is he talking about? And then I'm like, oh my god, that is actually funny. And like, it's it, it's really intuitive. Like, why wouldn't you do that to him? But you don't you don't think about it, I guess, in yep. the thick of the moment. But I'm not going to lie, I have, you know, I play pickup basketball almost every Monday. It's not nearly at the level you played at, I'm sure. But I have, I've, I've used the trick once or twice. I'm not going to lie since I found out. And it works. And it works. It does. It It works. works. And it's not illegal. It's not illegal. Now, I was going to say, speaking of um, (laughs) great coaches, you know, Coach Thibodeau, he's, he's famous for popularizing the ice pick and roll coverage. And, they say, you know, he, he really did it under Doc Rivers in Boston. And I was watching um, a game of yours from, I think it was 07. And I noticed you, you iced a ball screen when you were guarding a guy on the wing. And I'm like, huh, that, that looks like a ice coverage. I'm like, but was, was it really in vogue at that point? And so then I'm like, huh, let me go on basketball reference really quickly. Look at the coaching staff of that team and go down to the assistants. And what do you know? It's, it's coach Tom Thibodeau. I'm just curious, was he talking about um, ice and weak coverage and that during the time you had him as an assistant coach? 
Oh yeah, yeah Tibbs one of the, the, the best defensive minds that I've, I've played for, and he was he was a great coach. I learned a ton from him about scheme, and uh, you know him and Van Gundy, you know, brilliant, smart coaches. I think they were utilizing the strength of our team that year, and that was Yao, you know, and, and Matumbo. And you know, we'd be we'd be an idiot if we're trying to blitz pick and rolls and show mm-hmm. pick and rolls with Yao. Uh, he just couldn't didn't have the foot speed, but Yao was big, man, and so. We had really good wings where if we just forced the coverage down and sort of funneled everything into Yao, dude, seven foot six. Like you're, you're not you're not going to attack him too often. Uh, so we just kind of like just smothered offenses just by trying to keep it on one side, force towards the baseline and sideline, and and, ha- and make them contest with uh, Yao Matumbo. And so we, you know, we were a really good defensive team. You know, we, we oh, I yeah. think our offense, our offense. Um, you know, is ultimately what hurt us in the end, that team. But defensively, man, it was really tough to score on us. And especially once we got in the half court. Yeah, I think you were part of, um, I had the stat at top of mind a couple of days ago. I can't remember. I think you were top, you were a part of top five defenses for like five straight years, dating from Memphis towards your end of your time in Memphis. And then during that, like that prime three-year run, you kind of had in Houston from 06 to 09. Yeah, I mean, we played. We had some great, you know, with QB and, and Mike Fratello and Jeff Van Gundy and Tibbs, you know, and even uh, Rick Adelman was our coach in Houston. We had top five defenses, so we played some really, really good defensive teams. You know, lucky to have some really smart defensive coaches uh, to teach us, you know, just how to how to how to take teams out of their their offense. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, you know, you're you're like the the perfect person to work, you know, in a, in an NBA front office, because you, you think like, like the nerds, like me and all those analytics geeks. And then you also, you know, you're in as athletic and you know, you know, the day-to-day grind of being a basketball player. So you're like, you can be the bridge between those two worlds and help like each other understand each other. You know, I know you did some work with the Miami Heat for a little while, but is there, is there any chance we see you back in, in the NBA game soon? Um, you know, I still work for the Miami Heat as a as a strategic uh, advisor uh, to, to Nick Harrison, the owner, and my and my friend. And so, um, you know, I love I love thinking about these problems. And uh, you know, I don't really have a desire to be a GM. I've been mm-hmm. I've had an opportunities to sort of uh, go down that path and kind of like it from a, a higher level uh, perspective. And uh, you know, the thing about working in the front office, like as much as data is involved, it's still, it's still about culture. It's still about building teams. You know, I, I always say like the two most important factors in building a great team, whether it's, you know, you're working for Starbucks or, or General Motors or Apple is you got to have trust and you got to have mission focus. And so the mission focus comes in, you know, with the data and understanding like what wins and what loses, but you still got to be able to trust each other and build a culture where people feel they have an impact and are valued. So Every championship team I played on have had those two things. So it's fun to think about those things and talk about those things and, and uh, try to help the Heat, you know, get back on top with, with those two uh, components. Well, I appreciate your time. I'm very fascinated by your career and you had an incredible career and just seemed like an incredibly great dude. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. All right. You're welcome, Matt. All good, man. Good luck to you. Hey, Coach. How's it going? Great, Matt. How are you? I'm awesome. I guess let's start, you know, you had the luxury of coaching against and coaching 
Shane. And I want to start with, you know, coaching against him. So we'll talk about like his prime years. So like say around 2005, 2009, he plays for the Grizzlies and the Rockets and you are coaching under coach Mike Woodson in Atlanta and then coach Spo in Miami. Do you like, of course you only played him twice a year, but still how much when you guys were game planning for his teams was his defensive abilities, a consideration in your offensive game plan or was what he was doing under the radar, even for coaching staffs? No, uh, he, you were very aware of him uh, defensively because what what you figured out really quick was that Shane um, was not going to allow you to do uh, what you what you were comfortable doing night in night out, uh, especially based on percentages. Uh, at that time, I didn't know he was really looking at numbers the way he does, but you can see that he was studying something to know if I can just get, take this away from this guy, or if I can get their offense to do, to go away from this, then we'll have success. And so as a coach getting ready to play against those Memphis teams and uh, his Houston teams, uh, you knew that he was going to have one of the great matchups. He was going to take one of the better matchups, but he also was going to know everything that you do uh, as well as, as well as your own team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I know from watching teams you've coached for and listening to you talk in interviews that you appreciate the numbers, you're a man of the numbers. And uh, I I pulled out some numbers in preparation for our conversation. So from 2006, 2009, uh, you know, Joe Johnson, one of the guys you coached, he played Shane Battier six times, I believe. And so in every game other than those games, his true shooting percentage was 54%, which is pretty respectable for the time. Against Battier, it's 50%. Dwayne Wade, his true shooting percentage against non-Battier opponents, 57%. Against mm-hmm. Battier teams, 51.5%. And I know that's a small sample size, two players, but if you look at every ball-dominant wing or forward from 2006-2009 who made at least one All-Star game, so like Vince Carter, Paul Pierce, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Brandon Roy, right? All of them. percentages down. Shave their percentages down. Exactly. Can you tell me what is it about him? And please, like, don't don't hold back. Go all coach on me. I love hearing it. I love hearing the technical <laughs> stuff. Please tell me, what is it about his technique, his style that made him so good at doing this? Uh, one, he's blessed. He was he was blessed with a six nine frame with a seven foot plus wingspan. Uh, and you couple that with uh, a life of uh, incredible coaching from childhood through college uh, into the NBA. You look at the pedigree of coaches that he's coached with, and then you take all of that and you put it with a, an elite competitor with an incredible brain. Um, this guy is, uh, I think that package, and a very self-aware guy. Yeah, I just felt like his, his overall package of uh, intangibles and uh, things that a lot of people gloss over when you think about the talents of the NBA, Shane actually leans into those things and and makes sure that those are the details that he covers. And so, you know, when I was, when you put that together with a guy that's willing to study statistics, numbers, analytics, what a guy shoots from the left corner versus the right corner, what a guy shoots from the left block 
uh, versus the right block. You know, if you force him to his left hand, if you force him to his right hand, if you can crowd him, like Shane gets into that, you know, those layers. Uh, and the cool part about Shane is that he gets into those layers during in a regular season game. So, you know, it's tough to play teams on a one day prep situation. Uh, you may not have practice. You might just have a walkthrough in a ballroom or something like that. But when you got a guy like Shane Battier on your team, he prepares every game like it's a playoff game as the as an individual player. And uh, so when he goes into those games against stars like the Dwayne Wades and the LeBron James and all of these guys, his defensive intensity and focus and, and, and uh, uh, attention to detail – is going to be higher than everybody else that those guys play against. So mm-hmm. they're going to be in for – usually they were in for – a look, they still probably had numbers on them, but they knew they were in for a tough night. And the best thing that they knew that they could do was get, them, get a foul on them, <laughs> get a couple fouls on them and get them out of the game. But you knew that going into the game against Shane Battier that you were going to have to go to your counters. Yeah, no, and it's cool you mentioned the attention to detail thing because – and this is like super specific. So, you know, some teams, they don't, they don't help off the strong side corner. Right. And coach Adelman was one of those guys. And so, you know, of course, when you don't help off the strong side corner, you, you want to stunt at the ball, hurry up and get back to your man. And it's like, you know, in the regular season, people like they might not stunt or they might like stunt and then like half-ass get back to their man. But like when Shane would do it, it was like, it was like the way you'd see, I don't know, like Jalen Brown do it in game five of the NBA finals. Like that's how in depth it was, how, how well coached he was, like you said. And no, that's, that's really cool to see that, you know, it's not just me and my computer, you know, (laughs) nine hours into watching basketball for the day. I might've seen it. I might be hallucinating. It's actually like the truth. So thank you for that coach. And you bring up a valid point about him that a lot of people don't understand is Shane really based on the rules that were allowed and based on the system that he was playing in, he took pride in understanding the techniques that were necessary to execute. So a stunt and stick in the corner, uh, that's a technique that you have to have and understand timing and, and how to sell it like you're actually stopping the ball, but you're not stopping the ball. And, um, you know, his ability to, to front the post, to guard the post, um, you know, he, he just had all of the, bright, the proper techniques uh, when it came to uh, defending people within the parameters that he's given. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys don't put enough of uh, that emphasis into their player development to develop themselves as a defensive player. Mm-hmm. And not to harp too much on this, but even like when he was the low man, he was so good at the two nine and he'd play the yeah. two nine like he was like a five. That was like the cool thing. You know what I mean? He knew how to mess with you. He could sometimes he cleans on the strong side, sometimes he cleans on the back side, but he was always on time when the low man was required. So whether it was to take a charge, whether it was to still deflect a pass, whether it was to discourage, whether it was to trap the box, uh, you know, he was going to be there every single time. Like I can't even remember a time in my years of coaching him where he told, put up his hand and said, my bad, because he wasn't there as the low man. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, it just, it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't, he was never going to get caught by surprise on the weak side. He was the king of the charge and getting there for a charge. And so, yeah, he was, that, again, that's a technique. Timing the 2-9, when to go in, 
you know, understanding at the point of intersection between the ball and the screener and timing up when to go in the lane at that point, at that junction, he was just a master at that. And again, something that a lot of guys don't focus on, don't get great at, don't understand as well as they should. He took it. He took that as an opportunity to help him win a possession. Mm -hmm. So coach, I need to ask this because like, I know I've talked to enough coaches to know that coaches don't really think in the, Oh, I can't win a championship. If like my point guard is not a good defender or that's like, you guys take the pieces you have and your goal is to win as much as you can. Right. But I do, I do have this question. Do you think it's possible in that era where, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of post-ups, a lot of isolations, a lot of clear outs. Is it possible to have a non-big man be the best defender on an elite defense? What, back then? Yeah, in that mid-2000s, late-2000s era. Yeah, I did. I, I do. I think, you know, guys like Shane proved it. You know, mm-hmm. I just think that, uh, you know, the, the what you end up finding and – is from the point that we, especially from the point where we got together in Miami, all of us with the big three and all of that, the, the, the forward versatile defender became the most important defender, right? Because you think about the guys you named during that time uh, from the standpoint of wing scores and elite wing players. And then you look at the offensive systems that teams started to run where if you didn't have guys that can guard multiple positions, you know, you would find yourself getting knocked out of the playoffs, right? And what you also saw is you started to see guys who were liabilities were losing minutes in the playoffs. So bigs were starting to fade out, right? Uh, uh, Small guards were getting weeded out because you needed that versatile defender on the floor that can guard pretty much anybody from guards to bigs. And so, yeah, I actually, it's a lot of guys during that time who I thought were, you know, you talk about Tony Allen, you talk about Trevor Ariza as a young man, uh, you know, Shane Battier. It was, a, it was some uh, Ron Artest. I mean, it was some serious, you know, big time defenders uh, during that stretch um, that, uh, brought it to you every night and you knew you was going to have to go at them every night uh, and compete every night. And so, yeah, I think there, I think there, it, w- it is possible. It was possible. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you say that coach. Cause if you look at like from 04 to 09 um, Memphis and Houston, when Betty is on their team, top five defenses. And I know he played with Gasol. He played with um, Ming and, and Tumbo, all like big guys who could protect the rim. But if you look at, for example, that 05-06 Grizzlies team, right? They were second in the league defensive rating with Shane. He leaves to go to Houston the next year. They're 30th in the league in defensive rating with Pau Gasol still on that team. You know, that, that tells me like, so the reason I'm th- I'm talking these semantics, oh, was Battier the best defensive player on elite defense? Because you know the famous article on Battier, the no stats all-star. So I've taken it to heart and I'm trying to think, I'm like, was there ever like a time when he was providing all-star impact? And I'm looking at that mid-2000s time and I'm like, okay, if he's the best defender on an elite defense and he's like the perfect role player on offense, that sounds like an all-star to me, doesn't it? Well, nowadays that's starting to become more valued. Mm-hmm. I think you're starting to see guys like that are, are breaking in uh, and getting at least votes, that, that appreciation for that type of player now. 
you know, especially when they're on a team like like Draymond Green, right? Mm-hmm. Draymond Green, not a big time scorer at all, but elite when it comes to uh, quarterback in his defense. And so he's an all star, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so you got guys like that now. And I do think that, you know, back then um, it was unsung the way Shane did it. Again, when you, you're not, it, it, he's taking things away. And a lot of times you're not really looking at that in the stat sheet or saying, oh, this happened or that happened. Okay. He denies somebody the ball at, at the high post. Like he used to drive Carmelo crazy because he was, he would front Carmelo everywhere on the floor and just trust his low man on the backside. But, you know, overall, when you look at that, at, all-stars, you're just looking at Shane Battier as a pest back then. They're like, oh, he's just, he's a pest. He's just, he's not somebody that you, but for the guys that was on his team, he was an all-star. For us, we saw him as an all-star because it was more than just being a pest. He, the, the part that made him a pest was that he didn't let you do what you wanted to do. Uh, and it just frustrated a lot of guys in the league, but I don't think people appreciated it uh, to the level that they would today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that just frustrates me because, like, as like I obviously you know, I wasn't old enough to be covering the league at that time, but I'm sure like the media opinion was like he's just like a he's just a guy, you know. But then how could we have been so wrong on that? Like he was so much more than just the guy. Yeah, I think I, again, it's like the people, the media might miss it, but the people mm-hmm. that had him, the people that coached him, the people that got to be in a locker room with him, really appreciated him. Like I know his teammates in Miami, it was they had incredible admiration for him. He he mm-hmm. changed our culture in a way uh, that made guys invest more in winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and we're talking about the Miami Heat, who the epitome of of you know what it's all about to compete to win. Uh, Shane added another layer to the locker room that way because he actually got guys into reading the numbers, looking at their matchups, you know, taking strengths away from guys, you know, really getting guys. And and what happens when you take that little extra time to pay attention to the report, what you find is, is, is uh, your teams compete harder because they're more invested. And so Shane added that extra little bit of investment to everyone uh, in the locker room. And it also kept, I felt like it, 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 he, it held us to a higher standard as coaches because you couldn't come in there without with bad information. Shane Battier would be like, hey, that's not the numbers on him. He's shooting 25% from that corner. <laughs> you know, like he would know, like, like you couldn't, you, you had to be on, on top of your stuff. So, you know, although others did not appreciate it, uh, maybe in the, the media world, because what he does is it's sexy. But man, did it really have an impact on us winning. Mm-hmm. And it's perfect you mention what he does for the culture in Miami because I wanted to I wanted to go over that. Obviously, you know, what was happening in Houston, that was kind of like the beginning of this, you know, not beginning, but it was really a, a major stepping stone in the analytics revolution. How far along were you guys in your own analytics revolution in Miami by the time he got there? And how much did he do to move that forward? He definitely helped move it forward, but I would say we were probably already on our way, at least as a coaching staff. Spo was a, a big, big believer in diving deeper into the numbers and just really getting under the layers of the first thing you see 
And so we we were already on our way. But what 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 I thought Shane took it to another level for us was was into in the day to day preparation for each opponent that we were facing and being able to apply systematic ways to take advantage of what we learn day to day. Right. So we're playing uh, Kobe that night, you know, Shane can go into the numbers in that game and say, okay, we're going to have to ice him on the sides because he loves getting to this spot on the floor and da 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 you know, because we talk about it in a shoot-around. Spo obviously leaned on the veterans. Hey, what do you guys think on the sides over here? Should we cover it like this? Shane was like, look, Kobe wants to get to this spot. Let's push him the other way. Have the help sitting there. It's in our system. Boom, boom, boom. And it was just like, and everybody could, it was like, right now, let's go. Mm-hmm. And, and we knew what he was doing, and we knew we had to cover him when he was dealing with matchups like that. So it was, that's where I think he really helped the overall culture in Miami as a player from that standpoint, analytically. Um, we obviously gave them numbers on guys, and but we just didn't force feed it down their throat. Mm-hmm. But he took it and, and made it something that they looked forward to, to getting and that they actually didn't feel right if they didn't at least comb through and learn a little bit more about the opponent they was facing. Uh, you know, but Spo would always present, Spo was very good at presenting strengths and weaknesses of us and them through the numbers and, you know, showing how we can attack them based on their statistics. And, you know, suppose a video guy too. So we, we always said our, our, our whole mindset was the picture isn't complete until you put the film together with the numbers, you know, cause you think you're seeing one thing and then it turns out that it's something totally different. If you're just looking at one aspect of it, but when you put the whole thing together, you start to see it. And so that's where I thought Spo just really did. He taught me a lot about it that way. And I thought he did a great job with those guys of putting that together. And I think that connected with Shane, you know, to a certain extent that Spo uh, cared enough and cared about it, um, you know, enough to put it into game planning. Yeah. And I've I've always said, um, and I'm sure, uh, let me know if you agree, disagree, coach. I think the best way of going about combining the two is like you're watching and you think you see like a trend, a pattern, like, huh, he does this a lot. And then you go look, OK, that's true. The data says it's true. Or, oh, maybe I just looked at like a, a weird sample, you know. So is that is that usually I how both. I've, I've had it happen where one triggers the other. You know, mm-hmm. I've gotten a sheet of 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 numbers showing me a team's rankings in every department. Right. Off ball screens. What are they per 100 points per possession? And all of a sudden something jumps off the page to me. And I go, man, let me go. All right, video guys, give me all of their gaggle actions on the weak side. And now I dive into their guy and I start to see, oh, man, these guys are deadly at running this three-man action over here, you know, before I ever got to the film. But the numbers told me to go there. And it works vice versa. I can be diving into the film and all of a sudden I start seeing these trends of something happening. And I'll tell my analytics guys, hey, man, pull up. What are these guys in? and defending off ball screens or whatever it is. Like I see that they're giving up slips on the film. What are they in defense? Oh man, they're giving up, you know, 1.2 points per possession off ball screens. God, we're going to kill them with this. And just, you know, but you learn one from one or the other. But I think when you, when you want to have concrete factual evidence to present to your team, 
you want to be able to bring both to the table together to complete the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned, you know, his relationship with a lot of the guys in the locker room was he kind of like, and he's on the record as saying that he's the one who put LeBron onto like uh, defensive analytics and stuff like that. So it's not just me aggregating, but was he? Yeah, yeah, I seen him do it. I seen how they they always used to tease him early, like, mm-hmm. man, what you over there reading, Shane? Like the Wall Street Journal or something, or you know, you checking your stocks or something. Like, no, look, I got this cheat sheet. Look, this is what your guy gonna do tonight. This is, and then all of a sudden, Brown was like seeking it out, like, hey, what you what you got for me? Like, give give me some more, feed me information, because LeBron's an information junkie too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he love he could just he Dwayne these guys can can take in information and process it really fast and then apply it to the game physically, um, and so yeah Shane had a big part in all of those guys developing a, a, a understanding a want uh, a relying on analytics um, he that's why I'm saying it's there's something different about and co- coaches a lot of coaches are telling you this. It's like when you got to get on a player, it's something different about when you get on a player as opposed to when your teammate gets on you, a guy that you respect in a locker room. It's the same as it's different if a coach is sitting here trying to force feed numbers down your throat as opposed to this guy that gets it done on the court next to you who's really defending at a high clip saying, hey, man, look, this is kind of how I get away with this stuff, you know. And now he's telling a guy who's like a super freak athlete and now you putting that together. Shane's not a super freak athlete, mm-hmm. but he's stopping everybody. So guys like LeBron or Dwayne, like, man, if I can do that, if I can take that and apply it to my game, me being this, you know, all-world athlete, I can end up being a pretty dang good defender too. And that's where our defense really started to suffocate. Mm-hmm. It was like you know? the Bulls in the 90s, basically. You guys Ooh. were like Rodman. It's like um, Coach Jim Les told me one time, he's like, it was like unleashing the dogs. And that's basically what you guys were like at that point. Man, we could fly. Everybody was on a strain. We knew what the, the next guy was doing. Our low man was as impressive as it gets. You mm-hmm. can go back to any team in NBA history. I'll put that team up against anybody when it comes to low man coming across the lane and making the right play, stopping the team or forcing them to do something they didn't want to do. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a joy to coach. Uh, Spo did a heck of a job building that defense with those guys. And uh, like I said, Shane's, Shane was the filler. He was the guy that was filling in all of the blanks, uh, you know, the, the details, the intricate parts that could take your defense from, you know, an eighth-ranked defense to a second-ranked defense. Um, you know, that was the kind of guy he was. And then you're talking about like-minded guys like a Chris Bosh, you know, people who really saw it, like got it. Like as soon as, you know, Chris Bosh is a very analytical, you know, the numbers make sense to him. Uh, and so uh, he's very thoughtful, loves to read information. So it started, you saw guys that it connected to naturally, uh, you know, and, and when you get that kind of, that kind of uh, spread through your locker room, man, you got a chance to win. And Shane had a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. That's all awesome. And so now, Coach, today, how how many like is it like is it every team pretty much now they have a little bit? It's like the Joker. They have a little bit of Shane Battier in them. 
Yeah, you have to now. It's just keeping up with the Joneses. Every every team has a analytics department. Every team has is looking for players who 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 jump off the charts analytically. Um, you know, it's just it's 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 a deep, deep rooted part of the game now that I, I can't ever see us going back. Uh, you know, because it just it quantifies uh, performance. You know, if you can quantify performance and you can use it to strategize, build teams, uh, you know, win games, draft better, you know, all of this develop better. Like it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so necessary. And I just think every team now really gets that. And, you know, to, I was to the point, it was funny, I was just visiting some friends uh, in D.C. with the Wizards. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the young guys in their analytics department was with me in New York, uh, Zane. And, uh, uh, you know, when I was in New York, Zane goes, man, this is the first time I ever got to sit in practice. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you have to be in practice because you need to help develop more analytics for me based on what you're seeing. So as you see our system being built out, I would meet with Shane and say, okay, I want to be able to chart certain things that aren't necessarily in stats. You know, I wanted to know every time we got the ball in the scoring position within four seconds of the shot clock. I want to know how many times uh, we slot cut, got the ball and touched the paint, two feet in the paint, regardless. And what happened? Like I was trying to find, I was, but he, how could he really help me find this stuff if he didn't know what the heck I was talking about? So I was trying to educate him on our system, terminology, different parts of our game that I found thought was important. And so making them almost a part of my coaching staff, intricate part of my coaching staff was something that was really important to me as a coach and developing, bringing, you know, bringing the, the, the factions together. Cause you have this world where there's analytics and then there's this, well, they didn't play. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lack of respect on both sides for, for both. And what they don't realize is they're stuck with each other and they need each other to paint a bigger, better picture of what's going on on the court. And so the faster he, everyone understands that and the guys that do understand that tend to uh, utilize the information a lot better. Mm-hmm. Coach, you know what this reminds me of? Have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen The Wire? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you remember that one scene where they're, uh, you know, they bring that academic, the professor to one of like the, 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 the schools. Right. And he, he's like trying to use data and stuff to explain to them all their problems, but he's never, he's never lived it. He needs to, so you need both. You have to work together. You have to, the people on the ground need to work in unison with, you know, the nerds and stuff. And we, once you work together, kind of like how you were describing coach, like that's when you get beauty. Yeah. And that's why I say it's, it's instead of saying, well, you don't know this, say, no, let me show you this. Mm-hmm. Right. So for whatever my the analytics guys didn't understand about the game, we would try to teach them because the more they understood what we were trying to accomplish, the more they helped their lens look at, OK, well, we're falling short. And if, if other people may not see this, but if we could just tighten up this area statistically, this could really help our system. But if they don't understand our system, they don't know what to look for, right? And so I was just, I always felt like it was just a, 
own, it was part of my responsibility to continue to grow guys who maybe didn't play or maybe, you know, are just math people, numbers people, and bring them to a place where they can at least understand what we're trying to accomplish. And then they can help you improve your team because they know what you're trying to get done and vice versa, where I feel like analytics folks should be grabbing ex-players and and reluctant coaches and, hey, man, let me show you how we get to these numbers. And maybe you could help you find something in the film that you didn't see before. And building those relationships within under the same roof, because I've been in buildings before where the, it was a disconnect, mm-hmm. right? Analytics guys saw the other side as dummies and, the, and the, the, the athletic side saw the analytics guys as nerds who didn't get it. And so what we all had to figure out was we need each other and we can help each other, but we have to know what the other person is trying to get done. And we have to, we have to have understanding of the basics of what we're trying to accomplish as a group. But you're seeing, you're seeing that, that gap shrink in more organizations is dissipate. No, it's really cool. Whenever I talk to, you know, cause I'm like, you know, you have your preconceived notions. Whenever I talk to like an older head coach, I like, cause I have had older head coaches, like say pretty like old school thoughts. Like, you know, I don't, I trust my, it's like you're like Clint Eastwood, you know, like I yeah. trust my instinct. That's what I live and die off of. But then like a lot of these head coaches that are still around today, a lot of the really good assistants, head coaches um, in today's game that are older, that have been able to stick, stick around are the ones like who've been able to embrace this. Like, okay, maybe I don't know as much about it, but I'm going to empower people that mm-hmm. can, that can help me get into this. Adapt or die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Perfect right there, coach. Um, I was going to say now two, two funner questions I want to ask you. One is what's your favorite, you know, Battier memory interaction? Mm. <laughs> Probably my favorite. Uh, gosh, I had some good ones, but uh, I just remember comp- com- competition. My favorite was watching him against OKC in the finals. He drove Russell crazy. And when he played against David West, he drove David crazy. The next, the first time we played Indiana, he drove David crazy. The next year, David was getting at him a little bit because he figured out, I just got to beat this guy up. (laughs) Just try to beat him to death. But I loved watching him compete with those guys and just try doing just every little bit to get under their skin and drive and just impact winning uh, just in so many incredible ways. I mean, to get him and Carmelo, just just wars and just guys ready to just beat him up because he was just so annoying. And he just got hit so many big shots for us. It's hard to really pinpoint one moment with him. I just, he was such a joy to coach. He really, uh, he he was never a, absent. Mm-hmm. He was a very present guy. He was always in the moment. He was always prepared to help win. You know, he's just a rare, rare, rare commodity that way, that where you just knew when he was on the court, there was no time where he was going to be out to lunch or consumed in a mistake or because he's mad at the refs or no, he was present in the moment playing each possession to win it. And that's why he won a lot of possessions as a player. 
Mm-hmm. And it's cool you mentioned um, the West and Russell Westbrook. Because think about it, that's two completely different players, two completely different possessions. That just shows the versatility, versatility. Yeah, of what yeah. you can do. He was, you know, whether it was him switching on the rust or coming over on a drive and taking the charge or whatever it was to him wrestling with David West on a high pick and roll or a post up and getting to a front, making David West body slam him and so grateful for the body slam. Like, thank you for your second foul. Like he was just, you know, he was that guy. He would do, he he was the first guy ever seen do this. And I, I, I'm sure it's a lot of players that will back this up. Mm-hmm. He was the first player that I've ever coached on offense that would screw up defenses by calling out a coverage as he was running up to set a pick and roll. The first, I've never seen a player do that. Now I hear players do it every now and then. A lot of our Heat players stole the idea, but he would come up to set a pick and roll on the ball and he would be talking to the defensive guard like he was on his team, yelling out the wrong coverage. So he'd be yelling out weak, weak, weak to a guard or switch. And that's not what their coverage is. <laughs> and so the guy would execute the wrong coverage. The big will be executing another coverage. And next thing you know, we're taking advantage of the situation and scoring. Now, you think about that. He doesn't get an assist. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get a basket. Yeah. But we just got probably with the easiest basket we're ever going to get in the game because they're all screwed up on, is it a weak? Is it a strong? Is it a show? Is it a switch? Like, he was screwing people up left and right. Every series we would play in the playoffs, he would do that to teams to the point where teams had to add that to their report that you better know who's talking to you back there because if you hear Shane Battier, don't listen uh-huh. to him. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. So just like to for people listening, just to give like some – modern day perspective. That's like, say the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Famous like for drop coverage, right? So say they're playing, I don't know, say they're playing a team and the screeners just yelling like, you know, weak, like ice, ice, ice. And like Brooks like, oh, what are we, what are we doing here? I don't, right, I don't know, right. you know? So, so basically it's like, say like, uh, right? Say you're playing against, say Steph Curry's handling the ball and Draymond Green is running up to set a screen mm-hmm. for him. But he's yelling under. Now, in your mind, you know you're not supposed to go under on Steph, but you're listening to this call, and if that just a bit of that hesitation of you thinking about, wait a minute, what? what? Three, uh-huh. right? Or you're calling out weak, 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 which means send him to his left hand. Mm-hmm. But the screener, your big man, is on the other side. So now you jump up to send him to his left, and there's no big man help sitting there waiting for you. Because the actual defensive big is on the right side and it's a strong, but he Mm -hmm. hasn't gotten to get it out of his mouth yet because Draymond beat him to the punch. That's the kind of stuff Shane would do. And Dwayne would just walk to the rim and get a highlight from SportsCenter or Bron would go tear the rim off or whatever. No one would know that it was because Shane Battier just screwed up the whole defense (laughs) with, with making up calls. And so... He was brilliant that way. And uh, he just really, he looked for any way he could get the advantage. And it was, it was never in a dirty way. It was never in a, a malicious way. Um, he would keep and be an irritant, but overall it was about how do I win this possession with the things that I have, <laughs> whatever he, whichever way he can win it, he would find a way to win it. Yeah. And that brings me to the other fun question I wanted to ask. And I've been asking all interviewees about this, about all the players in this series. 
And I know it's it's a, a tough question because with revolutionary guys, there's a reason they're revolutionary. It's because they're unique. But is there anyone you watch in today's game who just kind of makes you smile a little bit because they remind you of Shane? Uh, well, obviously, you know, Draymond has a lot of Shane's qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the no he, stats all star. Yeah, and I, you know, it's just very similar impact on winning. Uh, from that standpoint, um, it's just, I'm thinking of other guys. I, to me, Draymond is probably the ultimate example of, of modern day Shane Battier. Like, I can't think of a better name than that because uh, Shane is a better shooter, but Draymond can make a three, right? Shane, but they both could guard everyone. They can switch on to everyone. They can guard post-ups. They can guard guards. Uh, They were most likely the smartest person on the court most nights from a basketball IQ standpoint. They're extremely vocal. Uh, They knew both guys know your stuff better than you. Some of your guys know your stuff, you know, Um, and they just really – the other thing that they just they really understood that they both understand very well is how to make other people better offensively. You know, they knew how to play basketball. You know, we would run some of our most important offensive plays down the stretch through Shane uh, as a passer. I don't know. You may have to go back through the archives, but we had a big basket against the Spurs the year we beat them where we ran our Jack Ramsey play and we hit Shane on the elbow and we curled Dwayne. And Shane throws this bowling ball skip bounce pass on the money for a huge layup uh, in that series. And, you know, that's Draymond. Draymond is their trigger passer. They run all of their stuff uh, and goes so like a split cut action kind of. Yeah, basically, yeah. you know, we, we put LeBron on the on the box underneath Shane at the elbow mm-hmm. and we flared a guy that entered into the elbow. So mm-hmm. it kept everybody lifted on the weak side. And Dwayne would go like off of LeBron's pin down on the box because they didn't want to switch it. So they would chase Dwayne. And it was a tight curl. And Shane would just throw it right over the top to the other side of the rim, basically. And boom. But that time, they had their hands up. So Shane literally bowled it to him. But if we didn't hit Dwayne, we would drop it to LeBron on the post up and then split from there and play. Mm-hmm. But Shane, would we would run that kind of stuff where we would – Dwayne set a rip screen on the weak side slip or, you know, we will always put it in Shane's hands to make that trigger pass. Uh, and, or if we needed a screen set or if we needed something executed, Shane was always an intricate part of that offensive action because we knew he was going to do it to the nth letter. Um, and so very similar to Draymond and how Steve uses Draymond in a lot of actions. The only difference is, Especially in his older years, he didn't bring the Shane didn't bring the ball up, mm-hmm. but he would he was a corner runner. Like so, we would tell Shane Ray, Shane Ray Allen, James Jones, Mike Miller, you must put pressure on the defense by getting to that corner as fast as humanly possible. D'Antoni style. Like you got LeBron and Dwayne mm-hmm. coming up the court, you want to just. There was never a possession we had to say, show on film, hey, Shane, why aren't you running? That was not even – we didn't even have to waste our energy on something like that. Like, you knew he was going to be in that corner, hands and feet set, 
ready to let it go. Um, and you knew it was a good chance he was going to make it too. Um, and so it was just, he, he just really, you didn't, once you gave him his role and what you expected of him and what you needed of him, you know, he just made sure he executed it to the letter. And it was, uh, you know, it's just not a lot of guys like that anymore running around that's that detail oriented, that is that focused and, and, and present and self-aware. You don't see it as much anymore. No, I, I appreciate all that coach. I really appreciate your time. This was so awesome. I love, I love all the basketball insight. I appreciate you, bro. Have a good all one. Right. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Blazing the Trail. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way towards raising awareness for this series. Hey, I don't make the rules here, just the podcasts. Speaking of raising awareness, I want to spend a moment raising awareness for Shane and his wife's charity, the Battier Take Charge Foundation. Over the last 14 years, Shane and his wife Heidi have worked tirelessly towards helping underprivileged children in low-income areas in Miami, Houston, and Detroit obtain a quality education at the collegiate level. Since the foundation's inception, the Battiers have been able to raise $1.5 million for children in those areas to go to school. If you're able to contribute, please visit BattierTakeCharge.org to donate today. Higher education is one of the key pathways towards social mobility for disadvantaged youth, so making sure they receive a collegiate education is of the utmost importance. Again, please visit BattierTakeCharge.org today. Also, be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications when new articles and podcast episodes come out from me and all my other wonderful coworkers at Basketball News. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys next time for the Reggie Miller episode. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.